bulletin, so take a look at it. But this morning, we want to study God's Word. Amen. So let's open our Bibles up to Daniel chapter 3 as we continue our journey through the book of Daniel. Let's also remember to turn our ringers off our phones. A lot of phones have been going off in the services. So just a friendly reminder, let's turn those ringers off, our phones. We only got a few minutes in the Word of God, you know, relative to our week. So we want to be able to be focused. We want to be able to hear and not be distracted. So if we would please do that, that would be very, very helpful as we open up God's Word. Father, we do ask that you would just, Lord, bless this time in the study of your word. As we look at this very familiar portion of scripture, that, Lord, it speaks to us. Not only looking at the implication, but the application for us, because we will find ourselves in the plain of Dura, being told to bow down to the world's image, to the world's idols. Lord, these three that are before us, they encourage us. And Lord, their actions speak to us. I do pray this morning, we pray for the Ukrainian people as they're fleeing their homes, being destroyed. We hear words like, it's like Armageddon. The fear of of weapons of mass destruction already beginning to be used. The talk of the war spreading in Europe and what we see with China and what we see with Iran. And the Bible speaks of these things, how the nations will rage. But we know that you're on the throne and you're in control. We want to be wise in the days in which we're living in. So, Lord, we look to the scriptures. And even as Paul, as he wrote about the days in which we are in, he, he would write that we don't have to be shaken in mind or troubled, but we can comfort one another. Even as Jesus would say right before he went to the cross, don't be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, and in my Father's house are many mansions. That you're going to come and receive us to yourself. And I pray this morning that we would be reminded that you are able and you are faithful. And Lord, that we leave this place just comforted and strengthened because we've been here. So Lord, teach us. Touch our hearts. Help us be attentive to what you're going to speak to us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Daniel chapter 3, you know, is a familiar portion of Scripture to most of us. I I think to all of us. It's even familiar to people who are not Christians, to those who are not familiar with the Word of God. And there are such stories in the Bible that most people know about, or uh, they they know about when reference, uh, and they have some knowledge of those accounts. For example, we're entering into March Madness and in the basketball tournament for at the college level. And every year, it seems like a lower seed, a smaller school is going to face a, a large 
school and a higher seat, and they use that term as David against Goliath, and we know what that means. We know the account of Jonah that was swallowed by a large fish. Most people are familiar with that. They'll say a whale. The Bible doesn't say if it's a whale or not. It could have been. But, but that account is given, and a lot of people believe that that's just a myth. It's just an allegory when we know that truly took place. Two such stories that most people are familiar with, even non-Christians, are found here in the book of Daniel. One is Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. The other one is here in this chapter of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, that's their Babylonian names, their, their Hebrew names. They're given names for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they're thrown in the burning, fiery furnace. So as we look at this account, we know that as we've gone through the first two chapters here of Daniel, that in chapter 1, that these three Hebrew men, they came along with Daniel, taken captive, carried away from Jerusalem in the first siege against Jerusalem. And they were taken to be trained back to Babylon in the language and literature of the Chaldeans to serve the king of Babylon. We know his name, King Nebuchadnezzar. And these three, as well as Daniel, were the ones in chapter 1 who purposed in their hearts not to defile themselves. They said, we are not going to eat the king's meat. We're not going to drink his wine. We saw them, these three, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, we saw them in chapter 2 briefly as they prayed with Daniel to have Nebuchadnezzar's dream revealed and then the interpretation of that dream, which we saw and read about last week. Chapter 3, they are mentioned 13 times by their Babylonian names and will be the focus of this account before us this morning. After this chapter, you don't hear about these three anymore. So most people's knowledge of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is relative to them being thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, you might recall, if you were with us in our study last time, that when Daniel revealed that dream and the interpretation of the dream in chapter 2, that Nebuchadnezzar was amazed. And Daniel was promoted in Babylon. He's sitting at the gate of the province of Babylon. He really is Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. And also, he petitioned that these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they would be promoted in Babylon. So they have been promoted. They got prominent positions. Now, there are always those who come along and try to challenge what the scripture has to say. But it's interesting that archaeologists found a cylinder in the ruins of Babylon, and on it were these three names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three mentioned as having a prominent position in Babylon, historical figures that lived in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. So let's begin to read chapter 3 as we read in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now remember again in the previous chapter that Nebuchadnezzar having that dream. And what he dreamt was an image of a man that was just spectacular. It was full of splendor, um, and he was troubled by it. It was a dream of a multi-metallic image, and Daniel would tell him the dream and gave the interpretation of that dream. And in that, we saw that Daniel was speaking of the Gentile nations that would come on the scene 
from the time of Daniel, Babylon, till the second coming of Jesus Christ. And remember in the dream that this rock came and hit the image in the feet, and the image crumbled and turned to chaff, and the wind blew it away, and then the rock grew. And of course, the rock, speaking of God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ will usher in God's kingdom. That is a kingdom that will last forever. Now, man's kingdom one day will pass away. And then when Jesus Christ comes back, the Prince of Peace, that's when we're going to see that peace and righteousness will cover the earth, as Isaiah says, as waters cover the sea. So remember that the dream that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in the interpretation, that in that image of the man, there was a head of gold. And he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. You and your kingdom, but your kingdom is going to be replaced someday. It's going to be replaced by the chest and arms of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. We will see that in chapter 5. And when Daniel gave that interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar falls prostrate before Daniel and said that your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of dreams. And even though Nebuchadnezzar is amazed and at awe at the God of Daniel, which we know to be the only true God, he's not converted. He says, your God, Daniel, not he will now be my God. That's going to come, we will see in the next chapter. But between chapter 2 and chapter 3 here of Daniel, it is believed about 20 years have passed. And if that is true, then the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. 605 B.C., the first assault on Jerusalem, where the young men are taken off into captivity. We read that in chapter 1. The second assault on Jerusalem, most of the people would be taken off into captivity in 597 B.C., and we know that Ezekiel was one of those that's taken off to Babylon. He's prophesying. The third and final assault on Jerusalem was because Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. There is Jeremiah. He's prophesying. He's ministering to the leaders. He says, Zedekiah, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, or there's going to be great death, destruction, and devastation to the city of Jerusalem. Well, Zedekiah rebelled, and Nebuchadnezzar came in the third and final time in 586 B.C. He destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed Solomon's temple as it laid in rubble. At this time, Israel's last rebellion has been crushed, as well as Egypt's last rebellion. He has come to the point of ruling over the known world with no threat to him at all at this time. He has had time, 20 years, to think about the dream that was told to him and the interpretation of it that came in chapter 2. And now Nebuchadnezzar, here he is, as we read in verse 1, he makes an image, notice here, of all gold. And he puts it in the plain of Dura, which is about six miles south of the ancient city of Babylon. And I believe, and many scholars believe, that he has the mindset at this time that I'm going to make this image of all gold because my kingdom is going to last forever. I will never be replaced. I'm in absolute control and rule. My kingdom is going to last forever. He is thinking perhaps that my kingdom will always be established. It will not be replaced by the chest and arms of silver, which you said is another kingdom. When in reality, history tells us that Babylon will fall in about 50 years from this time here in chapter 3. Because God's word stands. It very well could be that that's what Nebuchadnezzar is thinking. And this is the best way, listen, to unify everyone. 
to have this one world government, and I will make this image so that we will have this one world faith. And as Daniel, in his prophecies that we will see, particularly as we get to chapter 7 through chapter 12, we're going to read in this book that's going to tell us and give us details about an individual that's going to rise up, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. John comes along in the New Testament, gives him the title of the Antichrist. And he's going to come as a world leader. And he's going to try to globalize the world political system into a one world government and also try to bring the world into a one world religion, into one faith. Initially, Daniel being the forerunner to the book of Revelation, know this, that in Revelations chapter 6 through 19, it gives us detail at that final seven-year period called the tribulation period. And in the first half of that seven-year period, we know that there's going to be a false worldwide church that will be on the scene. And it's Revelation chapter 17. It's the woman riding the beast. And the beast being a title of Antichrist, he will support initially this false church that will be on the scene, but then he'll destroy the woman, as we see in that chapter of Revelation. And as he destroys the woman, it's because, as Paul writes in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that he will go into the temple of God to proclaim himself as God, to be worshipped as God. So the Antichrist, what's he going to do is he's going to set up an image of himself, and he's going to command the world to worship him. And he's under the control of Satan. That's one thing that Satan has always wanted, to, to be worshipped. And we know that the Antichrist will do that. And he'll try to bring the world into a one-world government, one-world economic system that you will not be able to buy or sell, according to Revelation chapter 13, unless you make your allegiance to him and take the mark of the beast. Now, I just want to emphasize, keep everything in context, because there's been a whole lot of talk about taking the mark of the beast. You know, if you get the vaccination, or if you buy this credit card, or if you do this thing, we are not in the tribulation period, first of all. Second of all, the Antichrist hasn't come on the scene and commanded the world to worship him and to bow down to him. So make sure that you keep everything in context because we're even seeing, as I, I mentioned last week and the week before, there's a lot of false information that is out there that is being promoted in websites and all of this uh, messages. I saw one just not, uh, I think, last week or the week before saying we're in the tribulation period and all these things. So we want to keep everything in context. We're not in the tribulation period. I personally believe that the church will not be here in the tribulation period, that he's going to take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth that the Lord is going to rapture the church, take us out, and then that seven-year period will come on the scene. But I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 13. Again, Daniel called the forerunner to the book of Revelation. And in chapter 13, it tells us how he's going to, to rule over the world. Verse 4 of the chapter, So they worshiped the dragon. Dragon is the name of Satan. And gave authority to the beast, the beast being the title of Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. So that's three and a half years. So for the last half of the tribulation period, 42 months, 
1260 days times, you know, times and a half times is what we see is the, the full seven years. But in the second half of that seven year period is called the great tribulation period. And you recall that Jesus said that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel, the prophet, he makes reference to Daniel in chapter nine. We will look at that very carefully. He says that it's going to be great tribulation such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. And it's going to conclude with the second coming of Jesus Christ as we will come back with him to this earth and he will establish his kingdom. But in the meantime, the Antichrist is going to rise up directly influenced and empowered by Satan himself. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints that is the tribulation saints, and to overcome them, and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Matter of fact, I just saw a reference, somebody saying, well, the Antichrist isn't going to be a world leader. Well, here, Revelation chapter 13 tells us that authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So he's going to come along, and he's going to try to globalize all the nations and, and, and come into one religion, and that is to worship him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, that is yet future. We hear before us this morning the king of Babylon, chapter 3 of Daniel. He's full of pride. He's very arrogant. And we're going to see in the next chapter that God's going to deal with him in humbling him. Now, this image, all made of gold, is 60 cubits high, which is about 90 feet tall, 6 cubits wide, about 9 feet wide. And it's interesting that archaeologists found this large base uh, there in the plains of Dura. And it was 45 feet by 45 feet and 25 feet high. So very well, they believe that this is that, that base, the place where the image was set upon. So the image being 90 feet tall at another 25, you got something that towers 115 feet that could be seen from a long distance as they begin to gather there in the plains of Dura in this dedication um, ceremony that's going to be taking place. Let's continue to read in verse 2. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4, Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Verse 7 we read, So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the different kinds of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now this image is complete, standing uh, there in the plains of Dura, 
for all to gather the, the officials of Babylon at this dedication ceremony. Now, there's eight classes of officials that are listed here. The satraps, the chief representatives to the kings. Second of all, the administrators, their military commanders, the governors, civil commanders, the counselors, their, the council to the governmental officials, Treasurers are listed here who were in charge of administrating funds. Judges, administrators of the law. Uh, they, they must have been pretty bored because whatever Nebuchadnezzar said, that became law. There was no challenging it. The magistrates passed judgment in keeping the law. The officials who were the rest of the governmental people. And some scholars have suggested that at this time there would be between 200 and 300,000 people in the plains of Dura at this dedication ceremony. There are two things before them. Number one, this golden image, in which when they hear the sound of the music of the different instruments playing, they were to bow down to the image. And second of all, there's this large fiery furnace that would be there. And the decree from the king is this, that you will bow down to the image or you will burn. And notice that they will be thrown immediately into the burning fiery furnace. And it is obvious that as we continue reading that this furnace is fired up. It's ready to go. And the people could see it. It's not a little furnace. It's a big furnace that smoke is coming out of it. And it's big enough to where we're going to read next week that it's big enough for four people to walk around in. So it is sitting there before all the people who put fear into the, the hearts of the people. And verse 7 tells us, when the music sounded, the two to 300,000 people hit the ground. They hit the ground and they bowed to this image. But then in verse 8, we read that therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the different kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews, verse 12, whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. There are certain Jews, as these officials come to Nebuchadnezzar, whom you've set over the affairs of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have, number one, not paid due regard to you. Second of all, they do not worship your God's king. And then thirdly, they will not bow down to the image that you have established and set up. And these guys that are coming to Nebuchadnezzar, they're pretty bold here. Almost a challenge to him. And you didn't challenge Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 10, you made this decree that everyone bows. Verse 11, and whoever does not will be cast immediately into the burning fiery furnace. And these three who you set over the affairs of Babylon have not done this. And it is clear that these Chaldeans, they really had a deep-seated resentment against these three Hebrew men. And they are really close to saying that, King, you made a mistake in trusting these guys in high positions that they are in. And to not heed to the king's decree and challenge, your gods is challenging and defying you personally, King. 
They are a threat to your political security and to you personally. This story here jumps out of the pages of Scripture to us this morning. Because I think that most of us, and certainly it will be all of us, in the day in which we are living, we'll find ourselves in this place. We will find ourselves in the plain of Dura. And there is an image, there is a belief, an acceptance, a celebrating, an embracing what everybody else is bound down to, but you don't. I will not bow down to that image because it's an offense to the ways of God, to the word of God, to the very heart of God. And as you say, no, I am not, I will not bow down, you are going to be noticed And a lot of you, as you work among your peers and in your positions and with family and with friends, that you find yourself in the plain of Dura. And the music is playing. And the people around you are bowing down to what is accepted in our society, in our culture. That which is an idol. They're bowing down to what the Bible calls sin. When it comes to biblical morality, that which is acceptable. Hey, it's acceptable to live in in immorality, sexual immorality. It's acceptable to live in homosexuality. It's acceptable and to celebrate, to change your gender and identity because God doesn't understand. He did not make you the way that you are. When you say no, when it's celebrated and embraced that we can take the life of an unborn child, When we see that in our institutions and in our schools that our children are being told that you were not made by God or created by God, that you're a product of evolution and you're a product of a monkey. That's why we have the theme of Psalm 139, because we want to get the truth into the hearts of our kids that God created you. You're wonderfully and fearfully made by him and he is with you. And he thinks of you constantly. You are precious in his sight. He created you. You were created for his good pleasures. But what they're being told is you evolved. You came from a monkey. And the poor monkeys, you know, they must be thinking, why are you blaming us? You know, we don't make war, you know, all that stuff. And when you say, no, I will not bow down to that you will stick out like a sword thumb and you will be noticed. 300,000 hit the ground, only three are standing. And culture and society in the world will want you to roast you because you say what these guys are going to say. We have no need to answer you. We will not serve your gods or bow to your image. And you will face what these guys are facing as we continue to read on in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time that you hear the sound, the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psalsery, and symphony, and all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. 
And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar's ticked. He's full of rage. He's full of fury. He gives the command, bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to me. Now, if we give him any kind of positive note, at least he wants to hear it from them. That's, that's all we really see here in this chapter. He wants to hear it from them. And he says, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I set up? So I'm going to give you another chance. We're going to play the music, and if you bow down, well, everything will be good. But if not, you're going to be put into that burning, fiery furnace. And then he says, and who is this God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to meet him. And you're going to find out. And Nebuchadnezzar, you're but a man. It reminds me of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus that said, Moses, who is this God that I should obey his voice? Well, Pharaoh found out. As the plagues came down upon Egypt, and then we know that the Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea. Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, the most powerful empire before Babylon, took the ten northern tribes off into captivity. They were brutal. They tortured people. They were ones that they were conquering the known world. They come to Jerusalem during the days of Hezekiah. They surrounded Jerusalem, and it's Shennacherib that's hurling threats at Hezekiah. He said, who is this God that you trust in to deliver you in Jerusalem? No other God from any other nations have been able to stop us. Well, Shennacherib found out as an angel came and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to find out who this God, the only true God, that who he is, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they're putting their trust in. As we read in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Here these three young men say that we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we don't have to think about this. We're not going to waver on this. We're not going to go into this long discourse why we're not going to bow down. And we are going to answer, and they will answer in boldness and in confidence and great courage. Because they know that their God, our God, is able to deliver us. We're not going to serve your gods. We're not going to bow down to your image. He is able, verse 17, but if not, verse 18, we're not going to compromise. Our God is able because he is true. And he's a big God. He's almighty God. And if he chooses not to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, we are going to be delivered one way or another. We're not going to bow down. And God is sovereign. What they are saying, if he delivers us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he's still sovereign if he doesn't deliver us from your furnace. He will deliver us from your hands one way or another, either from the furnace or we go home to be with him. But we are not going to bow down to your big, stupid, golden idol. They knew that they would be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar's hands because they were in the Lord's hand. And they say this with confidence. 
that he will deliver us from your hand, King. We don't care if you're the most powerful man on the face of the earth because our God is able to deliver us. But if not, it's the ultimate statement of faith. And the day will come, and perhaps it already has, when our faith will face and be at the place, the plain of Dura. And we read this account because it encourages us to say, as they said, my God is able, and he will deliver me one way or another because I have an eternal perspective, and I belong to him, and I'm in his hands, and no one's going to pluck me out of his hands, as Jesus said in John chapter 10. And I will say, as David said in Psalm 56, verse 11, that in God I have put my trust and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember Jesus said at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, be the wise one that built upon the rock. So when the rains come and the floods and the wind blew and beat on the house, it did not fall. The wise one is the one that hears these saying in minds and then does them. I'm reminding you of that verse because I want to ask me, I need to ask all of us, honest evaluation, what are we building on? What have you been building on? Are you building on the sand, the world? In the ways of the world, and the philosophy of the world, or are you building on the rock, Jesus Christ? What are we building on? Because the days of adversity will come. Perhaps they come to you personally. They will come to us. Our faith is going to be challenged more and more in the day in which we are in. And we need to be building on the rock, Jesus Christ. So when the, the winds of persecution and adversity come to us, we will be able to stand. And they are able to stand as they are an example to us today because it goes back to chapter 1 when they said over 20 years previous to this that we purpose in our hearts not to defile ourselves. Listen, don't think, how do I defend a faith that doesn't defend me in the day in which we live? God will defend you. And God is able and he will deliver us from this world. He will deliver us from that which wants us to bow down to his image. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body but not the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? And I pray that we would continue to just build upon him and grow in faith as I said earlier in the service today, more than ever, we need to be in the word, more than ever growing in God's word, to be here together, to encourage each other, to build each other up, to continue in our faith, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? By the word of God. To continue with him in confidence and with peace. And to say in purpose in our hearts, I'm not going to defile myself. I am not going to bow down, and I won't serve the gods of this world and the idols of this world. But I'm going to serve you, Lord, the only true God, who is able to deliver, but if not, but if not, he will deliver us into his hands. And he is sovereign if he delivers us personally and presently. He is sovereign if he takes us home to be with him. You will have tribulation in this life, Jesus said. That's a promise. But he said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And he's overcome the world, and you and I have an eternal hope 
that comes through Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is going to be a kingdom that lasts forever. May we walk out of this place just having that confidence in him. And listen, we're all in the plains of Dura. And what I pray is that we would say, Lord, that I want to be faithful to you because you've been faithful to me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this word that is given to us. And, Lord, that as we leave this place, that we would go out in confidence in you, not in ourselves, but, Lord, in you and your word, that we're in your hands, your promises. You'll never leave us or forsake us. And, Lord, we don't have to fear, but to rest in your love. Stand on your promises and build upon the rock in our lives. And I pray that you would help us as all of us in our lives find ourselves in this plane. And the music is playing all around us. That we would stay true to you. That we would be light and salt and a testimony of the reality of Jesus in our own lives. Because we know that there are people that they're looking for truth. They're looking for light. And we're able to give it to them the love of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone here in the sanctuary or out in a coffee shop or listening online or on the radio later that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. It's not religion that's going to save you or a church or trying to be good. You can't save yourself. It is Jesus that came and provided for you forgiveness of sin as he died on the cross to make atonement for your sins and he cried out it is finished he paid the price he did the work and then he was put into a tomb and he rose again three days later and he proved that he is the son of God who conquered sin and death I pray that if you are not right with God today that you would get right with him through Jesus Christ And as you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved, recognizing your need to repent and ask for forgiveness. He loves you so much. That's why he came. And the invitation is to come. To come right now. And in your heart, you cry out to him that I believe you, Jesus. I believe you died for my sins, a sinner. And you rose from the grave and you are alive. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my heart and my life as my personal Lord and Savior as I come in faith. And I thank you for saving me in this new beginning. And Lord, I don't want to bow anymore to this world. I bow to you to walk with you and know you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And for all of us as we leave this place, Give us the courage, Lord, the wisdom that we need. Lord, that you would help us to live for you. Father, I pray that as we come to you in honesty of heart and humility, that you help us be the men and women that you've called us to be. I thank you for this morning and I 
pray that as we leave this place in our mission field, that Lord did, knowing that we are here for such a time as this, to bless others, to be a witness of your reality, speak of the gospel. So Lord, bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, why don't you stand?